Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is a great blessing that we may be here again to join together in worship of our triune God. A particular welcome to any visitors. May you enjoy fellowship as you worship with us. May the, may the preaching of the gospel message direct, and, direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Saviour Jesus Christ and cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. Uh, Consistory has the following announcements. Uh, attestations have been requested by brother and sister Fred and Cathy Dawn to the Church of Cardup Brook, brother Eric Wilcox to the Church of Darling Downs and sister Tamara Alberts to the Church of Armadale. We wish them the Lord's blessing in their new congregations. Consistory will meet with elders only, the Lord willing, tomorrow evening, commencing at 7.30pm. The congregational meeting will be held on the 12th of February in this building, commencing at 7.30pm, with the Civil Grove Steering Committee and Consistory presenting. Next week, Sunday, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper in the morning service, and this afternoon we're thankful to again welcome Reverend Wes Breedenhoff to the pulpit, uh, Minister of our sister church in Launceston. And before we commence this worship service, let us sing hymn 63, verse 2. Sisters, if you're able to, please rise. We confess together that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now in faith, receive his greeting and his blessing. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Let's respond to that by singing hymn 78, and then immediately after that, we'll stay standing and we'll confess our faith by singing together the Apostles' Creed as we have it in hymn one.
Let's unite our hearts in prayer and ask God for his blessing on our worship this afternoon. Glorious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that again we can come before your holy throne. What an awesome privilege. And we do it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We do it with thankfulness in our hearts because you are so rich towards us. We thank you that you are everything for us in your Son. We praise you that we may know you as our Father, that we can enjoy covenant fellowship with you. You are infinitely good towards us, your creatures, the sheep of your pastures. And we ask that you will bless us again this afternoon. Please bless us as we open your word and see you revealed. Help us to know you in the right way from your word. We thank you that we have Bibles in our hands. Thank you that we have the gift of literacy, that we can read your word in our own language. Help us so that we would never neglect your word. Help us to hold it dearly and to cherish it like we should. We humbly pray that you will bless our worship this afternoon. We pray that you will hear and accept the praises which we offer to you, our sacrifice of thanksgiving, the fruit of our lips acknowledging your glorious name. Please bless the teaching of your word, that we may grow in it and live to the praise and glory of you, the one only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To that end we pray. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn together to the Gospel according to Matthew. There's a couple of readings there in that book. First of all, Matthew 14, 1 to 12. Listen to God's holy and inerrant word. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew 26, at verse 57, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, 
This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's sing together hymn 11, verses 1, 4, and 9. It deals, continues to deal with the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, let's read that together. It's on page 554 in your book of praise. Here the church confesses from the word of God, but may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner. Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects, or when necessity requires it, 
in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. A lawful oath is a calling upon God, who alone knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Beloved Congregation of Christ, this afternoon we're at Lord's Day 37 in the whole matter of swearing oaths. When our catechism was first written in 1563, the topic of oaths and vows loomed large in people's minds. And that was for two reasons. On the one hand, you had many people who'd made vows of different kinds when they'd been Roman Catholics. For instance, there were men and women who had taken vows of chastity and they became priests or monks or nuns. Well, after they became Christians, were they still bound to those vows that they'd made? After the Reformation, were they still obligated to be celibate and never get married? So that was one of the issues. On the other hand, there were Anabaptists who argued that followers of Christ should never make any oaths or vows. After all, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the Anabaptists argued that oaths and vows are unlawful for Christians. So back in the 16th century, in the 1500s, Lord's Day 37 was relevant for Reformed believers. It still is for today. And let me mention three ways. The first is the most common issue we face in connection with oaths or vows. It's the tendency for people in regular speech to say things like, I swear it's true, or I swear on my mother's grave, or even more piously, I swear on the Bible. Lord's Day 37 has something to say to those who casually use these sorts of oaths. Far less common are those moments where the government requires you to swear an oath. If you find yourself in a courtroom giving testimony, you may be placed under oath. Is it okay for Christians to do that? How should we do it? Well, Lord's Day 37 gives us a biblical answer to those questions. And finally, Lord's Day 37 is also often relevant today when it comes to the question of union membership. Now, it's true that not all labor unions are the same. They don't all require the same level of commitment from their members. However, we need to recognize that there are labor unions who do have membership oaths. Their constitutions call them membership oaths. And sometimes that involves swearing unconditional allegiance to the union, to your brothers and sisters in the union. Can Christians swear such an oath? And again, as we'll see this afternoon, Lord's Day 37 helps us sort that out with sound biblical teaching. Well, before we get into the meat of the matter, I want to deal with one other important preliminary item. As we look at the biblical teaching on oaths, we should keep our eyes on the gospel. We need to remember our Savior. We need to think about how he factors into this teaching. Can't take that for granted. First of all, we cannot forget that by ourselves, we are lawbreakers. You and I have both broken the third commandment in many ways. Perhaps also when it comes to the use of oaths or vows. Well, God has provided us with a savior. As we'll see later in this sermon, Jesus obeyed this commandment perfectly, even when it led to his death. And this obedience is ours when we believe in him. 
in his death on the cross. He has made a sacrifice which covers for all our failures in keeping the law. The blood of Christ covers every breach of this commandment. That's good news, isn't it? In fact, it's the best news that sinners could hope for. In the sight of the heavenly judge, we are not merely acquitted, but we are declared totally righteous. That good news puts Lord's Day 37 into the proper perspective. Listen carefully. This is not a prescription for how to be forgiven. Instead, it's a description of the lifestyle of a Christian who is forgiven. Also, when it comes to the matter of oaths. This is not about measuring up in any way, but how we respond to the gospel of grace. The law is our guide for showing God our love and gratitude. So let's look at the biblical teaching in Lord's Day 37 and what it says about oaths. We'll see that Christians may swear oaths in a godly manner. And we'll consider three questions this afternoon. What is a lawful oath? When can you swear an oath? And what is our oath-taking based upon? Question and answer 102 gives us a clear definition of a lawful oath. It's quite simple. Make a lawful oath when you call upon God to bear witness to the truth. At the same time, you're acknowledging that God will punish you if you have lied. In a sense, then, an oath is like a prayer. The connection to the third commandment is that if you're lying in this prayer to God and before God, you are taking God's name in vain. At the same time, it's also clear that a lawful oath must be made by calling upon the highest authority who knows all human hearts. Only God qualifies. In the Roman Catholic Church, oaths have been and still are sometimes sworn in the name of saints. But saints are mere human beings. They don't have the insight into human hearts to see whether the truth is being told or not. And saints also don't have authority to punish anyone if they're lying. Moreover, if we shouldn't be praying to saints, and if oaths are a sort of prayer, then certainly we shouldn't be swearing oaths in their name either. Only God is worthy of being honored through prayer and through our oaths. That's the logic of question and answer 102. And it's biblical logic. After all, the first commandment tells us to worship only God. Prayer is a part of worship. And since swearing an oath is a sort of a prayer... A lawful oath can only be calling upon the one true God. Now we could add that lawful oaths are also going to conform to the rest of God's law. You cannot make a lawful oath where you say something contrary to God's law. Whether it's lying testimony or a promise to do something sinful. When we make oaths or vows, what comes out of our mouths has to be consistent with God's perfect will for our lives. Well, let me give an illustration of an unlawful oath. It's in what we read from Matthew 14. In that chapter, King Herod made a rash oath to Salome, the daughter of Herodias, Verse 7 says that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she wanted. It was an unconditional promise. The text doesn't say whether he swore his oath in the name of God, but perhaps he did. Whether he did or he didn't, the oath was still unlawful. This 13 or 14-year-old Salome went to her mother to see what she should ask for, and Herodias told her to ask for something gruesome. 
the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod obliged. If he had seen that his oath was unlawful, he could have repented of it and kept John alive. But he thought he was bound by this oath, and so he went ahead and he murdered God's prophet. An unconditional oath that leads to murder is unlawful. Any oath or vow that leads to the breaking of God's commandments is unlawful and should never be made. And this is why the reformers argued that vows of chastity made by monks and nuns could be safely broken. Such vows should never be made by men and women when God instituted marriage as a good and holy state. These were unlawful vows or oaths, and those who made them could break them without sinning before God. But what about lawful oaths? Well, there are a good number of those in Scripture. There's Paul's use of an oath formula in passages like 2 Corinthians 1.23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. That's essentially an oath. Paul was calling on God as his witness that he was speaking the truth. And then there's also what we read from Matthew 24, uh, 26 rather. There are two oath takers mentioned in that reading. The second oath taker made not just one, but two unlawful oaths. As Peter was standing outside the house of the high priest, he swore twice with an oath that he didn't know Jesus. Did you ever notice that? He took God's name in vain to deny his master. That's sinking pretty low. And while Peter was outside doing that, Jesus was inside doing the complete opposite. We read in verses 63 and 64 that Jesus was put under oath by the high priest. And when that happened, Christ spoke the truth. And he did it in obedience to the third commandment. He did it for Peter and for you and for me. And he did it even though he knew that this obedience would lead to the cross. He knew that there would be a cost attached to this lawful oath. And yet he made it. Why? Because of his great love for sinners like Peter and you and me. Peter, outside, swearing unlawfully, deserving of condemnation. Jesus, inside, swearing lawfully, undeserving of condemnation. This is not only a picture of unlawful versus lawful oaths, but more importantly, a picture of what we call the great exchange. With an oath on his lips, our Savior takes our sin upon himself so that we can receive his righteousness and holiness. And when we see this gospel picture in Matthew 26, that should move our hearts. To move our hearts to love for God, the kind of love where we want to honor Him by only making lawful oaths ourselves. Well, if it isn't obvious already, a Christian who loves the Lord can't make an unconditional oath of allegiance to a labor union or any other human organization. A Christian simply can't promise to obey the union leadership no matter what. When you become a member of a union that requires that kind of a commitment, that oath, you are promising that you'll do whatever they say, even if it contradicts what God says in his word. Such unions, they seek to trump Christ as Lord and your commitment to him. It should be obvious that a Christian wouldn't want to have any part in that. 
Our highest and our ultimate allegiance is always to the Lord. And we should never deny that. We should never compromise that by taking an unlawful oath of membership in a labor union or in any other human organization. So then when can you swear an oath? That's the second question we want to look at. Well, there are two main scenarios where godly oath-taking is appropriate. The first is when the government demands it. If you find yourself in a courtroom or in a public inquiry or something like that, an oath is permissible. In years gone by, going to court as a witness would always require an oath of some kind. But in today's secular Australia, judges may not always require an oath. The legal system actually makes allowances for people who aren't religious or who may have conscientious objections to making an oath. So sometimes a judge will allow witnesses in a trial to simply make a solemn affirmation that they will tell the truth. But for us, as Christians, since we are indeed going to tell the truth, we should use the opportunity in that setting to honor God and swear in his name that we will bear witness to the truth. It's a good opportunity to make clear to the world that there is a God and that we live our lives before his face. The other scenario is when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth. Now there's some room for interpretation here of the words when necessity requires it. But certainly, you know, if we keep in mind that we are speaking about the use of God's name, we will never be glib and casual about it. What could qualify as a necessary situation? Well, I've never personally seen it happen, but it could be that a consistory would be dealing with a difficult case where there are conflicting accounts of what happened. In a situation like that, a consistory could certainly have the people involved swear an oath and thereby promise to tell the truth. Or perhaps in a serious matter, if our credibility was being called into question, perhaps in a situation like that, we might take it upon ourselves to swear an oath that we are telling the truth. But it should be a serious matter. It shouldn't be something frivolous. It's certainly not something that should become a habit in our lives. Instead, it should be reserved for exceptional circumstances. It should be clear then that casual swearing, I'm not talking about vulgarity or things like that, but swearing of oaths, that that has to be out for followers of Christ. Although vulgarity and all that should be out too. Obviously. But in our casual talk each day, I trust we would never say, I swear to God. We should understand that to be blasphemous, because it is. But something similar, though, is true when we say, I swear by my mother's grave, or stuff like that. And it's not so much blasphemous as it is idolatrous. Your mother's grave has replaced God in your glib, casual oath. Brothers and sisters, when can you swear an oath? When can you say, I swear it's true? When the government requires it or when it's absolutely necessary. But not just casually, on an everyday basis. On an everyday basis, Christ's instruction should be enough. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. We shouldn't have to pepper our speech with unnecessary oaths. It should be clear whenever we speak that we are people of integrity whose words can be trusted because we belong to Jesus Christ. Because as we heard this morning, we live in union with him as our head and Lord. He is the vine, we are the branches. He speaks the truth, we speak the truth. 
Well, finally, we want to look at the question, what is our oath-taking based upon? Our catechism says it is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and New Testament. Well, we've already seen two examples of proper godly oath-taking in Scripture. Jesus did it when he was before the Sanhedrin, and Paul did it in places like 2 Corinthians 1.23. If Christ and his apostles were swearing oaths in a godly manner, why can't Christians today? When it's necessary. And certainly that's backed up by Hebrews 6 as well. That chapter speaks of God's covenant with Abraham. It says that in that covenant of grace, God himself swore an oath to Abraham. Very interesting. God swore an oath. And who did God swear by? He swore by himself says Hebrews 6.13, because he could swear by no one greater. There's no one greater than God. So he had to swear by himself. This is what we call a self-maledictory oath. Self-maledictory oath. God was saying, let me die if I am not faithful to what I have promised Abraham. Of course, God could not die or lie. God could be trusted. His word was good and faithful. But for our purposes here this afternoon, we can see that oath-taking is commended here in Hebrews 6. If God could swear by himself to Abraham, why could we not swear by God to one another if the need is there and it's required of us? Scripture is clear that godly oath-taking is not out of the question. It's found in God's word. Therefore, we have to say that the Anabaptists, they were wrong when they forbid it completely. They focused on Jesus saying, let your yes be yes, and so on, but they neglected what Scripture said elsewhere. Sadly, there are still many Mennonites and other Anabaptists who continue to follow this erroneous teaching. And that's why we can be thankful we still have Lord's Day 37. The wrong thinking it was written to address is still around today. We need to be aware that the Bible says that we may and we must indeed call upon God with oaths when the need arises. Loved ones, God's name is a gift, and it's a privilege that we may use it. It's a privilege that we, as his children through Christ, may pray to him. It's also a privilege that we can use his name, if we need to, in order to maintain faithfulness and truth. But this isn't a privilege that should be exercised cavalierly. As if God's name is light and not that important. When we swear oaths, let it be in God's name only, calling on him only to bear witness to the truth. When we swear oaths, let it be only when we really need to, for his glory and for the good of our neighbors. Amen. Let's sing together Psalm 119, stanza 17.
collection this afternoon is for the support of the mission work in Papua New Guinea, and so we will also remember that mission work in prayer here before the offertory. Let's call on God's name together. O faithful and true God, thank you for your name and all that it means. You have blessed us with the knowledge of who you are and what you stand for. Above all, we have heard and know that you are our God and Father through Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking us into this relationship of fellowship. Thank you for, give, for forgiving our sins and trespasses through Jesus, including all the times that we have misused oaths or times where we have not been faithful to them, times when we have not been faithful to you with our vows. The gospel for our salvation makes us want to honor you with everything we do and say. We also want to honor you when it comes to our oaths. Help us to make only lawful oaths that acknowledge you as the only true God and Lord of our lives. Please strengthen us with your Holy Spirit so that with our words, we show our commitment to you as the source of all truth and goodness. Father, please also give us more grace so that we can be faithful in everything we have sworn and vowed in our lives, whether it's as members of the church, as parents, or as office bearers, or as husbands and wives. Help us always to be faithful and true, reflecting your image, showing our union with Christ for your glory. Oh Lord God, we thank you for the mission work that continues in Papua New Guinea on our behalf. We thank you that we can support that work. And we pray that you would bless it richly. We pray for our missionaries. We pray for Ryan and Ruth DeYoung, and for Tim and Alana Slaw, and also for David and Erica Pohl. Be with the DeYoungs in Papua New Guinea, be with the Slaws in North America as they continue to prepare for going to Papua New Guinea. And we pray that you would continue to be with the Poles as they are in Tasmania and as they will return to PNG later this week. We pray that you would protect and bless these brothers and sisters. We pray that you would prosper the work that they are doing. And we pray that through them, the gospel will continue to advance in PNG for your glory and for the good of sinners. We pray, Father, that you would go with us into this new week. We depend on you each and every day. We need your help. We need your strength. We pray that you would provide that. We ask that you would help us each day to conscientiously live for you. Please give us your blessing, and please hear our prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And you may now worship God with your offerings, and after the offertory, we'll sing together as our concluding song, Hymn 9.
God now sends us out into the world, and he does so with his blessing. Receive that blessing with faith in your hearts. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.